Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures slash high-yield-account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. What's the state of corporate governance? The deficit is a real issue. The U.S. economy continues to send mixed signals. The financial stories that shape our world. Fed action to calm concerns over dollar liquidity. Some encouraging China data. The 500 wealthiest people in the world. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Starbuck CEO Kevin Johnson. SEC Chairman Jay Clayton. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A glass half full with a new president and a vaccine on the horizon. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Four years ago, President Trump committed his administration to undoing much of what came before him, whether it was trade policy or financial regulation or international agreements. President-elect Biden has promised to reverse much of that course, but to grow the economy even as he pursues his goals on climate change, racial justice, and inequality. Can he do both? We asked Dan Tarullo, former Federal Reserve governor, who held senior economic policy roles in the Obama and Clinton administrations. I mean, in the short term, as as we've all been saying for nine months now, uh, getting a hold of the virus, getting a vaccine out is the single most important thing to continue a cyclical recovery. And that in and of itself will provide a substantial boost, hopefully, through all of 2021 and into 2022. So there, I think, as again, as we've all been saying, the public health issue is the most important economic issue in the short term. There is stimulus, there's a crying need for stimulus to carry us into the period where the, where the uh, vaccine is gonna take effect. But after that, you are gonna get some tailwinds basically from, from the recovery. Longer term, I think it's it's a question of whether the uh, the now president elect is going to be able to manage to get Congress to go along with some of the uh, spending priorities that he has. There's an enormous amount he can do just by having control of the executive branch, but it is going to be important for Congress to at least be somewhat cooperative. 
Well, and when you talk Congress, as a practical matter, we're probably talking the Senate, right? Because as we sit here, we're not going to until, until late in January whether Republicans or Democrats have the majority. Right now, I think you'd probably say it's likely that the Republicans will. Is it possible for a President Biden to do business with a Mitch McConnell and get some things done that certainly knows we hadn't gotten done last time? Well, I think I would say, David, if it's possible for any Democrat to do it, it's probably Joe Biden who can do it. Uh, he had, he's not only a veteran of the Senate, uh, but obviously has a longstanding relationship with, uh, the, with uh, Senator McConnell. Um, but if we step back from personalities a bit, I think there may also be some motivation uh, that uh, at least some Republican, a handful of Republican members of the Senate may have. So consider, for example, in uh, infrastructure investment. I mean, that, uh, that elicits raised eyebrows now in Washington, New York, and just about everywhere else because people have been talking about it as a potential bipartisan um, project, and it hasn't happened. But I think when you've got an administration, as we will, that has competence, that coordinates its policies, and that has a consistent set of policies, the chances of working something out become much greater. And consider, for example, if the um, uh, EPA administrator and other heads of agencies in the federal government begin to implement regulations directed towards climate change. So you dealt with economic policies, certainly when you were a member of the Federal Reserve. Uh, but also before that, in the Obama administration, in the Clinton administration, you really dealt with economic policy. As you look at the economy today, we still have a ways to come back. We've come back some. We still have a ways to come back, and particularly when it comes to jobs. We've still got over 10 million people who don't have jobs today who did before the pandemic. Is infrastructure the best, quickest, more sure way to restore some of that to the economy? No. Coronavirus vaccine is the quickest and surest way to do it because that's what's going to get the service sectors back up and vibrant. I would say, David, the infrastructure investment is a medium to longer term project. It's one that would both improve productivity and create good jobs along the way. But as we've seen it again and again, no matter how many times people say that projects are shovel ready, yeah, they're, they're ready enough that you can start walking to the truck to get the shovel, but they never seem to be ready to have as much impact as quickly as you'd like them to. So you mentioned earlier, Dan, that there are some things that the executive branch can do on its own pretty much without support from a divided Congress. Give us a sense in the economic sphere, what are the things that this president, President Biden, could get done in a reasonably short period of time? Well, uh, within the Labor Department, for example, where you've got the um, uh, Fair Labor Standards Act, he can, his appointees, can make different determinations as to who's covered by uh, minimum wage laws, when you have to pay overtime, that sort of thing, which could have a big effect uh, within the gig economy. Um, he can do things on student debt relief as well. Uh, there, there are any number of regulatory actions that he can take. And of course, he can also use such spending powers uh, as he has with already appropriated or soon to be appropriated funds to redirect them. So in terms of economic priorities, there's quite a bit that he can do uh, where he needs the uh, cooperation of Congress is obviously in increasing total spending or total tax revenues. Should we be concerned at all about the effect of regulation, more regulation on economic growth? That's always a question, right? Um, uh, in any administration, no matter what its ideological leanings. Uh, but I think in the areas where the President-elect has emphasized most 
the regulatory agenda, which would be on climate change, which would be on worker protection, uh, and to a lesser extent, financial regulation. Uh, in each of those areas, uh, I think that it's quite possible to get a set of regulations that achieve your regulatory end, but do so in a sensible way that doesn't create unnecessary disruption. That was Dan Tarullo of Harvard Law School. Coming up, we'll talk with Tom Montag, Chief Operating Officer of Bank of America, and Ann Finucan, the bank's co-vice chairman, about why they're taking the lead in issuing sustainability bonds. That's coming up on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. ESG, environmental, social, and governance investing, is all the rage. But how far can it go? Bank of America has been a leader in sustainable investing, and it's not limited to the environment or to governance. Last month, B of A issued a $2 billion sustainability bond tied to equality, with proceeds going not just to clean transportation and energy, but also to alleviating inequalities in black and Hispanic Latino communities. Tom Montag, Chief Operating Officer of Bank of America, and Ann Finucan, the bank's co-vice chairman, explained the how and the why. You know, we had made our billion-dollar pledge for racial equality, uh, and after that, because we've been a leader in the green and social bonds, we decided it would be uh, good to provide a blueprint for everyone else to be able to access this market. And so we put together the $2 billion sustainability bond and, and it was green and social, as you say. The difference for this was the social aspect of it was all for financial empowerment for black, African-American, Hispanic, Latino communities. And so the entire social aspect is there. And I mean, this is hard work because once you do that, you have to track the things that you're doing and, and make sure you're doing them. And so it was a lot of work internally and with finance to be able to have the tracking elements and know what we were going to do. So we track how much we do in affordable housing. We track how much we do for health uh, practices. We track supply chains for minorities. And so all those things are part of the social aspect, David. So this was $2 billion. We had incredible demand across from corporates, corporate treasurers and from investors. And so we were very pleased with it. It's interesting. I, I think you'd like this, that five years ago in 2015, there was $38 billion of green social sustainable bonds this year there'll be almost 400 billion so and we've been and so 10 times in five years and so we're really pleased with the bond and what's happened and by the way it's part of how we work here i was looking yesterday at just 
at affordable housing. Last year, we had over 8,000 affordable housing units that we helped finance. And of those 8,000, David, almost, over half of them, almost half of them, excuse me, were green themselves. And so we've tried to take green and social in a lot of the things we do. So we were we were so excited about this this bond and what it represented in the blueprint it set for uh, America. So Anthony, as Tom just suggested, this is part of a larger plan, a strategy for Bank of America. Put it in context. How does this fit with the other things that Bank of America is doing? ESG is sort of a good reflection of our strategy of responsible growth. Uh, how could you be responsible if you're not thinking about sustainability in the long term? It's also, as, as Tom is laying out, a very good business opportunity for us. We probably represent about a quarter, one fourth of the social or ESG bonds that have been uh, issued and underwritten in the last um, eight or nine years. Also, it's just been, and we meet with maybe the top 50 institutional investors, all of them are asking about this. All of them expect for you to uh, be be progressive in this regard and to do more. And our employees care about it too. And I might add that we see a lot of regulation that will be coming out of Europe in the next year or so. So we think that this is the place to be. There's a big business opportunity and we're gonna have to do it anyway. So Tom, pick up on that business opportunity. How do you make money on this bond? How, how does an investor make money? How do the proceeds come back? Who's making the money that can pay off the bond? Well, it's the, the bond's proceeds to whoever issues the bond on one hand, the bond's proceeds are used by us on funding the, the things that we have written down that we're gonna trap, be it green or be it the social aspect. So for that, that's how we invest our money and that's why it's called a greener social bond. As far as the investor, they like these bonds because there's lots of ESG funds out there or people that wanna invest in ESG product. Uh, at times the ESG product will trade better than the the non-ESG product, and so they can make money in that way. And in general, I think there's uh, more and more money that's being used by people to support this and this kind of effort, and that's why so much is being issued this way. And talk about that pricing issue. When you price the bond, do you have to put a premium in to encourage investors to come in? And how has it traded since you issued it? It's traded well. I mean, the market's been you know it's been a month, and a lot as you know, a lot of things have happened in the month, so it's 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 traded well. You know, you, usually it, it'll come at or slightly tighter than a, than a normal than a normal bond would at the time, um, but you can't see it all the time. And by the way, people are issuing different kinds of bonds too in this in this area in green, where things are uh, coupons can go up and down based on how you meet the different hurdles that you put for yourself for a manufacturer or uh, someone in the paper industry, for example. So there's all sorts of bonds being done uh, on, in the market right now. So, Anne, as you say, Bank of America has been direct, directly investing equity as well as loans into areas that need the help, goodness knows, in this country. How do you coordinate, if you coordinate at all, with the proceeds of this bond, the sustainability bond that we've been talking about, with the other efforts? Do you do it with the same sorts of entities in some of the Hispanic and the Black communities? Yeah, the two are coordinated. But but I think there's even a bigger effort here. This one is a jumpstart to the other. The $1 billion is intended to do things that we might ordinarily not have been able to do. So perhaps concessionary capital, maybe it's philanthropy, it's investigating and, and investing where we might not have before. So for instance, we've uh, put, uh, we've got a program with minority deposit institutions where we will put uh, money and we have always put deposits into these institutions, but now we're going to put equity and we've already done 
12 of them. And the idea here is that when we put money into those institutions, they can give more, they can lend more at a community level. So one begets the next and it, it just increases the opportunity. The $2 billion bond just means there's that much more opportunity to lend and invest than we might have had otherwise. Tom, what about the accountability for all this? I'm not even necessarily talking about Bank of America, but in general, there's a lot of people saying they're doing environmentally sustainable things, things good for social, uh, the social compact. How do we know that that's true? Because we don't really have standards yet, do we? Well, we, well, we have standards and the standards that we, we literally have our, our auditors come in and make sure we are doing the things that we list that we're going to do. And so it is a, it is a well-tracked process. We, you know, David, we have, as I said, $10 billion of these type of bonds outstanding, five green bonds, two social, we did a COVID bond also this year, which was 1 billion and this 2 billion sustainable bond. So all of those bonds have a list of things that the, the proceeds can be used for. And that list is, is tracked and maintained and audited uh, to make sure we're doing that. In success, in success, does this create more customers for Bank of America as well? Sure. There's plenty of research to indicate that those companies that are good in ESG also have higher satisfaction levels with their employees, with their customers, with their clients. They're less volatile. Uh, there are any number of reasons why you might do this. I also think, as I mentioned earlier, that we will see legislation and regulation first out of Europe and potentially with the uh, Biden administration here in the United States. That was Ann Finucan, co-vice chairman of Bank of America, and Tom Montag, the bank's chief operating officer. Coming up, the election may not have gotten us past our partisan disagreements, but economist Paul Romer says the coronavirus may force us to do just that, because in the world of the pandemic, there are no blue or red states. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. President-elect Joe Biden will come to office with a series of policy goals, but may well face a divided Congress. And so we begin a look at the next four years of a Biden administration and what it might hold. We asked NYU economist and Nobel laureate Paul Romer what will determine the course of the next four years under a President Biden. And he began with the pandemic. I'm, I'm afraid that this might turn into a, an exercise where people say, well, the blue states had it right. The red states had it wrong. They've got to behave more like the blue states. Neither of them did that that well. The blue states um, had a lower death rate, but they've also had slower recoveries of employment back to where we were in, in January. So we need a new measure uh, that's different from what either side w was doing uh, in the last three or four months. And, and I think it's clear what that measure is. Do what the NBA did. Do what Harvard and Cornell and NYU were doing. Test people frequently, isolate them, and then let's get back to business. By the way, do what Taiwan did, as I understand it. Do what South Korea did as well. So it's pretty basic. We got to test. We got to do contact tracing. Wear a mask, whatever you do. And he said specifically, it doesn't matter who you voted for. Now, that seems pretty simple, but the simple can sometimes be hard because it's not clear people are going to comply with that. Yeah, well, you know, there was an interesting comparison of how New Jersey responded to an outbreak in the Orthodox Jewish community as opposed to how New York responded. New York responded with the more traditional public health measures, mandates, don't group together in big groups, don't do this, don't do that, wear masks. In New Jersey, they just started testing people and gave people the information. 
And this produced less of a backlash in New Jersey and more compliance, because once people started to see how many of them were infected, they, they took this much more seriously. So as you say, we've got to figure out a way to do both, walk and chew gum, as it were, which is to say, Absolutely. keep the economy as open as we can, at the same time protect people. But beyond that, there are larger issues over the next four years, eight years, 12 years that we need to address with the economy. And we have some people saying, look, in order to really get growth going again, because as you know well, Professor Romer, we've not had really growth rates with the developed countries for some time yeah. the way we did before. We need some yeah. massive thing, something like a Marshall Plan, effectively, to really invest in the economy. By the way, we could use the infrastructure and we need to move to green technology at the same time. You're absolutely right. If you look at the, the growth over this entire recovery up until the pandemic, both you know, like the second Obama term and the Trump term, this had the lowest rate of GDP growth of any recovery since uh, the end of World War II. So there is something deeper uh, structural that we have to address. And, you know, this is a time uh, when borrowing is inexpensive. This is the time to go big on uh, borrow and build. So I hope we can reach a consensus to on the kinds of things we could borrow and then build uh, to make uh, the, the country better. And Professor Romer, as I say, you received the Nobel Prize for your work in economics. And in part, I understand that was a growth theory that had to do with information and particularly the government investing. We have Arvind Krishna, who's the CEO of IBM, just provided me with a letter that he's written to President-elect Biden saying, look, it, we yeah. need to leverage science technology. We need to close the skills gap. We need to modernize digital infrastructure. It sounds like the sorts of things you talk about. Yeah. Although, you know, you know, the joke about economists, there's always this other hand. I worry just a little bit that this is going to sound like the scientists saying we told you so. Like we told you so. We were right. Give us more money. Give us more power and uh, everything will be fine. I think the scientific community, the academic community has to take ownership of the fact that expertise is not respected in the same way it once was. So we need to figure out what it will take to rebuild the confidence and trust amongst uh, most members of the public. And we're not going to get there by just brute force or scolding people. Well, when you talk about expertise, it makes me think a bit about the government itself, the federal government itself, because various experts have written saying that under the Trump administration, there has been a de-emphasis, if I can put it that way, on expertise, and that perhaps we don't have the same intellectual firepower, the intellectual capital that we had before within the government. Yeah, we, we not only haven't promoted people, we've left positions unfilled, but we've also frozen people. We've paralyzed them so that they're afraid to make decisions. I think of this poor woman whose job it is at the GAO to decide whether there's uh, a consensus that the election is, is over and then triggers the, the, the transition process. This woman is like frozen in place, afraid to make a decision because she's afraid she'll get yelled at if she does what's the obvious thing is to recognize that the, the election is over. And there were people in the FDA, people in the CDC in the same way. They were frozen. They wouldn't take leadership. They wouldn't act. They wouldn't take the kind of bold steps we needed to take. So we need an administration that gives people the confidence to rely on their professional expertise and do their jobs. Uh, do we know whether that's something the president could do with his administration without the support of the Congress? Because it looks like right now it's more likely than not that the Senate will have a majority of Republicans. Yeah, I think that the person who's at the very top of the executive branch exerts an enormous influence over all of the decisions made by all of the people under the executive branch. And I think the signal from the top that you will be trusted, you will be respected, even if you disagree with some of your peers or some other uh, policy statement from within this, this um, uh, 
this administration. That that respect, I think, can enable the people all up and down the bureaucracy to, to do their jobs. That was Professor of Economics Paul Romer of NYU. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. It felt like we took a turn this week toward a new president-elect who called for unity. This election is over. It's time to put aside the the partisanship and the rhetoric that designed to demonize one another toward a new Congress that looks like it won't go too far out on the progressive wing, and toward a promising vaccine candidate from Pfizer and BioNTech that initial data suggested could be much more effective than we'd thought. And so the markets were pretty much off to the races, and Treasury yields signaled better times lay ahead, at least until the end of the week. But is there a half-empty part of that glass that we're looking past? with continued division in a country still led by a president who won't concede that he's lost. For a reality check, we welcome now our special Wall Street Week contributor, Larry Summers, and Steve Ratner, the chairman and CEO of Willet Advisors, which manages the private and philanthropic funds for our founder and majority owner, Michael R. Bloomberg. So welcome to both of you. Larry, let me start with you. It's the question I've been asking myself all week long. Are the markets getting ahead of themselves? We've got record numbers here at the end of the week from the S&P and the Russell as well. We got that promise of vaccine, but at the same time, we have 150,000 new cases a day at this point in the United States. Who knows for sure, but I think it's important to remember that at least 90% of the value of the market and probably 95% of the value of the market is from earnings that companies are going to generate sometime after nine months from now. And as long as that's true, it's really long-run prospects that matter more than short-run prospects. And I think the vaccine is a big deal uh, in uh, that regard. I think the fact that we're going to have a transition of power um, in America is a big deal uh, in that regard. So while I feel much worse about the grimness of the winter than I did a week or 10 days ago, I feel better about the long run uh, future of the prospects, at least for corporations uh, in uh the United States. I think the combination of uh, the fact that we're going to have a more stable government and 
whether it's good or bad, ultimately, and I've got reservations about it, they're going to be more stymied in their abilities to promote inequality um, in the Congress. That combination is pretty benign from the point of view of corporate interests. And that's, of course, what the stock market reflects. Yeah, And Steve, what about that transition? It's not as abrupt a transition as we thought. It looks right now, at least, like the Senate may well remain in Republican hands. What does that say about the possibility of stimulus, which a lot of people thought we needed rather badly, including to deal with the COVID-19 problem? Yeah, I think uh, I agree with everything Larry said. And I think adding stimulus or lack of stimulus into the equation is an important part of trying to understand the market. I'm not going to make short-term predictions either, but I would note that essentially on the same day, we had the announcement of the vaccine and we had the news that we were going to have divided government, which the market, I think, correctly interpreted to mean we were going to have a lot less stimulus. And that sent interest rates down, even as the vaccine, in theory, should have been more bullish for the economy. And so it was almost like the opposite of a perfect storm uh, for the market and that it had two good things happen more or less at the same time low interest rates, which are very bullish for the market, as well as uh, the prospect, the real prospect, uh, for the first time of a vaccine that could be a game changer within a, a reasonable time horizon. So, so, Larry, what about the interest rate issue, and particularly the yield curve? Because it really steepened. It's come off that a little bit toward the end of the week. But is that yield curve telling us anything relevant right now? You know, these movements are big in the slope of the yield curve relative to what we've seen lately. But by, well, but by the standards of the longer term of economic history, uh, these movements of 10, 20 points, if that, in uh, the yield curve aren't that immense. So I wouldn't overdo uh, the significance of those movements. And of course, movements in the yield curve are different when they're about real interest rates than uh, when they're about uh nominal interest rates. I do think we're at risk of making a consequential error in not providing uh, more stimulus. It may be that we'll be okay because there's a lot of cash that got built up from unspent stimulus in the past, but it may be that we're not okay. And so I think we're taking much more of a risk of a double dip uh, than is uh, prudent. And, uh, you know, you look at what's happening around the rest of the world and the risk that there are going to be some real financial aftershocks here is not something I'm prepared to predict. But it's certainly something that as a policymaker, I would want to be uh, insuring against. Uh, Steve, as an investor looking below the top line numbers on the equity indices, uh, what did we see this week? Because Tech had been driving things up. Then tech came off some this week. It looked like we were at least flirting with some cyclicals and even some value stocks. What is that telling us about what investors are thinking? Yeah, no, there was a significant rotation in the market uh, this week. And again, it really related to uh, the vaccine more than anything because the cyclicals have been, you, you've had the greatest dispersion between growth, so-called growth stocks and so-called value stocks or cyclical stocks. Uh, certainly in my recollection, I think probably, in, in fact, I know essentially in history, we're at like the 90, we were at the 99th percentile of dispersion between those two fundamentally different investment strategies. And when the market uh, perceived that there was a light at the end of the so-called tunnel, uh, two interesting things happened. First, the cyclical stocks rallied enormously. You had airlines up 25% in one day, hotel stocks, leisure stocks, everything that has been really beaten up uh, because of the virus. 
And at the same time, ironically, you had the growth stocks come off because people uh, perceived that there was, might be less use of these things going forward. So you had Zoom stock go down, I think, 14% the first day after all this uh, hit the news. And so uh, markets, you know, we, Larry and I have had many discussions about the efficiency of markets, but this was a case where the market suddenly woke up and decided the world was going to be different than what it thought it was going to be, and you saw stock prices adjust accordingly. Uh, Larry, we are on the, the, the border of a new era here with a new president, maybe a divided government, we'll see. But nevertheless, we're turning a chapter here. Uh, as a practical matter, what do you think the chances are that the Biden presidency, whether it's one term or two years, could be consequential? I think that it will be made consequential by the magnitude of the events that uh, going to deal with. It's going to deal with a reconceptualization of some kind of the U.S. relationship with China. These are going to be crucial years for the global effort on climate change. Make no mistake, uh, the expected return time of some kind of pandemic threat, this is nowadays more like a once every 15 year thing than like a once every 50 year thing. And the world's going to have to get it together to be ready for the next one or not. And that's going to depend on what happens in a Biden administration. Perhaps most fundamentally, Abraham Lincoln talked about government by the people and government for the people. And he assumed that those two things went together. And you saw in the number of people who voted for Donald Trump, what you saw in in Brexit, what you saw in Bolsonaro's election in Brazil, what you've seen with Modi in India, what you see in the greater attraction of the Chinese model to people around the world, what you see in the number of young people in the United States who profess not to believe in democracy as the best system, is increasing doubt about the proposition that government by the people will always be the best government for the people. And Fundamentally, that's the task of this administration, to reconvince people of that Central American premise, both in the United States and around the rest of the world. So I think succeed or fail, this is likely to be a very, very consequential uh, presidency, and I'm, I'm, optimi I'm optimistic, but no one can be certain. Well, everyone has to uh, uh, hope for success, Steve, but as a practical matter, can uh, President Biden deal with a Mitch McConnell if he, if he is majority leader and make it a government for the people? Whatever one could say about that, that means, can he make fundamental change in what we're doing in this country? That, that's exactly my concern about this, and I don't want anything else I say in this uh, show at all to sound partisan, but I would say the following, which is that I understand why the markets to some degree and lots of people that we all know uh, think divided government isn't such a bad idea, checks and balances, limitation on what the president could do. But I worry a lot about, I agree with everything Larry said about the fears about democracy, the threats to democracy, the, the, the concerns that there may be a better system, that democracy isn't working. Uh, you look at China's success in uh, getting past the virus and the way their economy is going to grow this year, unlike the way any other developed country is going to grow this year. There's a lot to worry about, about democracy. And I worry that divided government isn't going to help. Um, we are living in an ultra-partisan environment. There have been, 
uh, you could count on one hand probably the number of uh, bills that have been passed by Congress in the last four years that had any kind of bipartisan support of one kind or another. Um, Larry will be able to speak to this better than I can, but uh, we were both in Washington in 2009 when the Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate until Teddy Kennedy died in August of 2009. And even then, it required Herculean efforts by, uh, by many people in the administration to get even what got passed passed. There you have it, an economist and an investor giving us the balance of hope on the one side and caution on the other. Many, many thanks to Larry Summers, our special contributor to Wall Street Week. He is, of course, from Harvard. And Steve Radner of Willett Advisors, who invests the personal and philanthropic funds of Michael R. Bloomberg. And that does it for this edition of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.